Welcome to Night Night Bitch. I'm your host, Molly, your guide to awe-inspiring texts read by me or in the voices of their original creators. Please know I don't own any of this content. It's all freely accessible online and duly cited in my episode descriptions for your reference. This podcast is a creative outlet for me, so I don't update it as regularly. But if you'd like to subscribe to my other podcast, Back From The Borderline, I release two thought-provoking episodes each week. And now, let's dive into the episode. Welcome. It's time to rest your weary mind, unwind, escape the matrix, and explore the arcane. We live in a culture that is rapidly losing its grasp on myth and meaning. Exploration of philosophy, depth psychology, esotericism, the occult, myth, and mysticism have been proven to inspire awe. Such experiences of daily awe have been shown to be psychologically beneficial and aid in the potential expansion of consciousness. Each time we're here together, I'll select a reading, article, or sample audio that could increase your opportunity for such experiences. While you listen, you might fall asleep. You might wake up. You might do both. Maybe finding the perfect balance between awake and dreaming is exactly what you always needed. Night night bitch. This is the exercise for your own development process designed by you. You should be hearing my voice in your right ear. Remember the purpose, your purpose for this exercise. And begin your pre-preparation process now. The affirmation beginning, I am more than my physical body. Towards the end of the 11th century, there appeared in southern France a variety of literature that represented a new way of looking at the world. This was the courtly love of the troubadours, soon adopted by the trouverets in northern France. It was a revolutionary worldview in that it placed human love at the center of the universe and raised the woman, or rather, the lady, from the status of drudge and brood mare to that of a high ideal. Both these revolutionary notions have persisted into our time and both are atypical of the views held in other societies and in other periods witness the role of women in modern Islam or in ancient Greece. 
The question is, to what extent this new way of looking at the world represented a departure from religious orthodoxy in the 11th and early 12th century. During this time, particularly by the 12th century, early troubadour poetry had raised women to a very high ideal, giving them mystical and even goddess-like qualities. Despite the legal and cultural status of women being far below that of men, music and literature were idealizing them to supernatural heights. Simultaneously, there was an interesting surge in the idolization of the Virgin Mary in the church. While this might sound on the surface like a nice step forward, considering what we know about significant gender inequality during the Middle Ages, it can be reasonably assumed that women probably didn't enjoy being held to such an impossibly high standard. Being idolized isn't all that great when it doesn't come with any actual perks, like basic human rights. The idea of courtly love encompassed all the rules and ideals for romance, and particularly stressed how beautiful, divine, and saintly the objects of their desires were. Men sang tales of chivalrous knights, proving their love to fair ladies. Women, on the other hand, also sang about romance and their too high expectations of their lovers, but often strived to humanize their own gender and to balance out the idealized versions with lyrics that were very personal and considerably more down-to-earth. Think about everything you know about medieval musicians. Picture it. What image first comes to mind? Perhaps you're thinking of a bard or a minstrel in a tavern plucking away on a lute, singing songs of love and chivalry. If so, you wouldn't necessarily be wrong, though modern depictions of these minstrels in movies, books, and video games only capture a tiny and highly romanticized piece of the music world of the Middle Ages. The real story is much more complex. To truly understand this part of the Middle Ages, we need to understand the concept of something called courtly love. Courtly love was a medieval European literary conception of love that emphasized nobility and chivalry. Medieval literature is filled with examples of knights setting out on adventures and performing various deeds or services for ladies because of their courtly love. This kind of love is originally a literary fiction created for the entertainment of the nobility. But as time passed, these ideas about love changed and attracted a larger audience. In the High Middle Ages, a game of love developed around these ideas as a set of social practices. Loving nobly was considered to be an enriching and improving practice. Courtly love began in the ducal and princely courts of Aquitaine, Provence, Champagne, ducal Burgundy, and the Norman Kingdom of Sicily at around the end of the 11th century. In essence, 
courtly love was an experience between erotic desire and spiritual attainment, a love at once illicit and morally elevating, passionate and disciplined, humiliating and exalting, human and transcendent. The topic was prominent with both musicians and poets being frequently used by troubadours, trouvarets, and minnesanga. The topic was also popular with major writers at the time, including Dante and Geoffrey Chaucer. The term courtly love was first popularized by Gaston Perry and has since come under a wide variety of definitions and uses. Its interpretation, origins, and influences continue to be a matter of critical debate among scholars. Andreas Capellanus chaplain to Marie de France and author of the classic The Art of Courtly Love, defined love as a certain inborn suffering derived from the sight of an excessive meditation upon the beauty of the opposite sex, which causes each one to wish above all things the embraces of the other, and by common desire to carry out all of love's precepts in the other's embrace. Lauded by nobility and idealized by troubadours, the ideal of, quote, pure love, which included strongly self-deprecating behavior and servitude by a man for a distant yet unattainable woman, was a driving force throughout the high period of medieval love literature. From 1100 to 1300, most intensely in the quarter centuries before and after 1200, the language of lady love prevailed in the courts of England and Europe. Courtly love was viewed as an art with rules, which rules were articulated in great detail in Andreas Capellanus's work, The Art of Courtly Love. Whether this work is satirical or sincere is debatable, but its popularity, evidenced by the number of translations into vernacular and surviving manuscripts, more than twice as many as those of another much-loved tale of the time, Knight of the Cart, or Lancelot, by Creighton of Troyes, is nevertheless testament to the popularity of the ethos of courtly love. As I mentioned, scholars differ as to the origins of courtly love, some claim this ideal arose out of Moorish influence, as the Arab poets brought their lyrics of lady love to Europe, in the wake of knights returning from conquests in the Holy Land, and increasing European trade with the East. Others claim that courtly love was European in origin, citing the influence of Celts, Cathars, and Neoplatonists. It may be that scholars are looking in the wrong places for explanations. In many works on courtly love, emphasis is placed on the role of the male in the dynamic, and the origins of courtly love are traced through lines of male poets, troubadours, and patrons of literature. But the widespread popularity, even quasi-religious devotion to courtly love, cannot be easily explained by the intentions of medieval patriarchs, nor does the interplay of then-contemporary Eastern and Western cultures explain this mystery. One must look beyond the spheres of contemporaneous male influence and into medieval Europe's recent 
and distant past, a pagan, matriarchal, goddess-centered past to understand the import that courtly love's guidelines held for the people of medieval Europe. In the countless millennia before Christianity, women had been the glory of the world, an object of worship among people. Since between 9,000 and 7,000 BC, depictions of the great goddess appeared from Ireland to Siberia throughout the Mediterranean area, Near East and Northern Africa, archaeological finds of goddess images were countless. The Venus of Wilden Manishlok Cave dates back 70,000 years. These finds testify to a popular devotion to the divine female that was once durable and ever-present. Some of the most enduring and ubiquitous matrophocus was among the Celts. In the 3rd century BC, the territory of the Celts ranged from Galatia to Asia Minor, from northwest Scotland and Ireland, south to Andalusia and Spain. The Celts' influence over Europe was a way of life. It was pervasive and long-standing. According to Pigeot, the basic structure of the medieval farming economy had been in existence in prehistoric Celtic Europe for 5,000 years prior to our era. But the farming economy of medieval Europe, dating back to the 6th millennium BC, was not the only significant aspect of Celtic ways. Equally pronounced was Celtic feminism, consisting of complete quality of the sexes, with balance slightly weighted on the feminine side. Celtic society relied heavily on the leadership of women. They attended and often presided at the tribal councils. Chief men were elected while the monarchy was hereditary in the female line, a source of awe to the conquering Romans the significance of women in Celtic society was frequently recorded by Roman historians. Ammianus Marcellinus wrote, A whole troop of foreigners would not be able to withstand a single goal if he called his wife to his assistance, who is usually very strong and with blue eyes. It was for the matrons to decide, Julius Caesar wrote in the Gallic Wars in 58 BC when troops should attack, and when they should withdraw. According to Julius Caesar, the Celtic women comprised the joint chiefs of staff of the Celtic people. In domestic affairs as well, women were accorded equal significance. Marriage ceremonies were designed to assure the bride that she would lose none of her independence by marrying that she would be an equal partner with her husband in the pursuit of honor and glory, to share with him and dare with him, both in peace and war. As high-ranking and fierce as mortal pangid women were the deities of the pre-Christian world, and of all the ruling female figures, the goddess Artemis, or 
Diana, reigned supreme throughout most of the settled world, and Artemis myths extended back to Neolithic sacrificial customs. Hers was a fierce reign. At ancient Taurus, all men who landed on those shores were sacrificed by Artemis's holy women under the direction of the high priestess, Iphigenia, their severed heads nailed to crosses. At Hierapolis, Artemis's victims were hung on trees in her temple. In Attica, Artemis was ritually propitiated with drops of blood drawn from a man's neck with a sword, a remnant of former beheadings. In her huntress aspect, her hunting dogs tore the horned god, Acteon, to pieces. In the classic Artemis drama, the stag king, with deerskin and antlers, reigned over the sacred hunt for half a year, and then was attacked and dismembered by Artemis's hunting dogs, also called her sacred bitches, and replaced by his co-king. In Europe, Artemis was known as Diana, or the triple goddess. She was lunar virgin, mother of creatures, and the huntress and destroyer. In her sanctuaries, sacred kings periodically engaged in combat, the loser dying as the god Hippolytus. The roles of shaman, sacred king, priest, and victim commingled in rituals intended to assure the fertility of fields and the prosperity of people. As gruesome as the sacrificial king's end may have been, it was his blood which assured the continued survival of his subjects, and without his compliant obeisance, his willingness to put down his own life aside for the sake of the greater good, that ritual of the old ways would have come to naught. It was into this feminist, matrifocal, pagan continuum that the Christian church came forth, and for hundreds of years, Christ's greatest rival was the great goddess. At first, Constantine ordered the destruction of all goddess temples in the Roman Empire and forbade the worship of the goddess. Yet, the devotion of the people, or pagans, to the great mother never stopped. Diana's cult so widespread in the pagan world that early Christians viewed her as a major revival and named her Queen of Witches. The Gospels called for the destruction of all temples of Diana and in Ephesus, a major Dianic pilgrimage center. The Dianic shrine was taken over in the 4th century AD and rededicated to the Virgin Mary. In 431 AD, one of the earliest churches dedicated to Our Lady was in Ephesus, but most believed the Lady was Diana, not Mary. In 432, the Council of Ephesus tried to eliminate Diana worship, but the bishops were besieged by crowds demanding, Give us Diana of the Ephesians and give them Diana they did. She was assimilated into Christian mythos as Mary's mother 
or elder self, the grandmother of God, Anna, Hannah, or Diana, Dinah. The Gnostics named their wisdom goddess Sophia, the same grandmother of God, and when the Ephesian Diana temple was demolished, its proffery pillars were carried to Constantinople and built into the church Holy Sophia. From the beginning, the exclusively masculine new Christian religion was resented and resisted by its potential converts. Christian evangelists discovered, however, that the people would accept the Christ if allowed to retain their goddess as Mary. The Christian church incorporated pagan holidays into its own sacred calendar and acknowledged Mary as Queen of Heaven, originally the Roman title of Diana, the triple goddess and mother of God. Ironically, Christianity succeeded ultimately because it represented a return to the original goddess worship, which devotion to the Roman gods had precluded. Despite all attempts by the church to stamp out the pagan ways, medieval man still predominantly worshipped the mother. Simulating a reverence for the strange religion, the real religion went underground. The Black Mass and the Sabbat were far more widespread than the church cared to admit. The people of Europe formed secret societies at every level, figuratively and literally to thumb their noses at Christianity. Without some saving grace to redeem Christianity in the eyes of the people, the survival of the church seemed unlikely. And so, Diana, dressed as the Virgin Mary, rose in prominence and waxed in power. Knights took their shields to her likeness, incorporating millennia-old ideals into the new medieval context, a context which was of dire necessity allowed, even encouraged by the struggling new Christian church. Cathedrals built in medieval Europe at the turn of the millennium may have been intended to glorify the masculine god, but they resulted in the veneration of Notre Dame, which means Our Lady in French. In its fanatical patriarchalism, the church had set out to annihilate goddess worship, yet in its struggle for survival, the church was forced by popular demand to recognize the goddess and Mary. Unfortunately, Diana's redeemed status did not carry over to the portion of mortal women a misogynist church was on the rise. Priests increased their influence, preaching a mix of male domestic violence and female shame to newly converted heathens. Husbands were encouraged, even extorted, to beat their wives. And wife-killing was an easily pardoned offense. Women were reduced from ennobling ideals to sources of temptation and failure, and tales abounded about knights who succumbed to the evil temptations of the female at the expense of their liege's sovereignty. Despite the ferocity of the church's subjugation of the female, heathens or pagans retained their devotion to the great goddess. By the 11th century, Mary had completely eclipsed Jesus as the savior of mankind. It was in the 11th century that the troubadours first began to appear. 
chivalry waxed in form and substance, and the ideal of courtly love found expression in the words and deeds of medieval man. The Celts of Cornwall, fleeing the encroaching Christian church, found greater acceptance and tolerance in France. They brought with them a wealth of folklore, such as the accounts of the Holy Grail, which French poets absorbed into their own work. Out of the Celtic folklore, French poets created the great romances of the Middle Ages. The first troubadour of record was Duke William of Aquitaine. His poetry is said to contain all the elements of courtly love, and his formalized ideals were carried north when his granddaughter, Eleanor of Aquitaine, married King Louis of France, divorced, and then married Prince Henry of England. Eleanor became queen twice shortly after each marriage, and it was in her courts, to the north and to the south, that the ways of poetry and of courtly love flourished. Under Eleanor's influence, Tristram and Ysolt, Wace's Brute, and the romance of Troy were written. Three of Eleanor's sons were patrons of literature and kept the troubadour tradition alive, but her two daughters, especially Marie de France, played the most influential roles in carrying on their mother's social and literary interests. Marie was to thank for commissioning Crétin de Troyes, Knight of the Cart. Crétin credits Countess Marie with furnishing subject matter and the manner of treatment, and writes that he was trying to carry out her intentions. Courtly love most flourished in the time of Eleanor of Aquitaine's influence in France and England, when Andreas Capellanus declared a court of ladies convened in Gascony. But this age of influence was not long-lived. In 1174, the same year that dates the art of courtly love, the courtly love experiment in France was set back abruptly when King Henry of England came to Portois, took Queen Eleanor back to England, and imprisoned her for some time. The other ladies in her court were sent to their homes and imprisoned there. The disbanding of the portier matriarchy dissolved, the critical mass of female power and influence, and was no isolated incident in the medieval patriarchal Christian wresting of the power from the women of Europe. Misogynist writings flourished at that time, and the sin, guilt, and impurities of women were preached from every single pulpit. There was a brief return to matriarchal influence in 1181, when Count Henry of Champagne died, leaving Marie to act as regent during the minority of their sons. During this time, Marie revived Troyes on a small scale, her mother's social experiment without interference. While Marie's court was not as receptive to the ideals of courtly love as Eleanor of Aquitaine's had been, courtly love's ways did survive in the literary activity of that period. Chrétien worked on his story of the Grail, and Andreas Capellanus, her chaplain, continued work on the art of courtly love, his book under her direction. The age of chivalry signaled a revival of Celtic feminism in England and revived in Christian Europe the matrifocal ethos of the Celts. Yet the passion engendered by courtly love was hardly mortal in nature, 
alone. In locales where women's political and social power was concentrated, the gynephocal ethos of courtly love found both a context and a language to express what was one of the last overt expressions of the veneration of the divine female. For the long-standing, now subverted European tradition of goddess worship had found a new voice in the language of love poetry from Eastern lands. The love poets of the East brought to France a vocabulary of veneration for a chaste and distant female, which matched the sentiments of once matriarchal Europe. In a time when overt goddess worship was strictly forbidden, the language of courtly love and the standards of chivalry enabled a deprived and subjugated people the chance to express a deeply rooted side of them within a permissible social context. As tempting as it may be to credit Eleanor of Aquitaine and Marie de France with creating and nurturing the institution of courtly love, it might be more accurate to say they merely built upon the long-standing archetypal foundation of lady love that had been denied its right to expression by the Catholic Church. In essence, they tapped a wellspring which the new politico-religious order insisted on sealing tight. But whatever the official view of courtly love and however strongly royal sentiment furthered its popularity, among the common people, the idea flourished. The Art of Courtly Love, the book, was widely copied, translated, and circulated. One of the earliest translations into French, dated June 14, 1287, attaches religious significance to passages not present in the original and explains that the lady, whose love one seeks, is the Virgin Mary. Throughout Europe, courtly love was both fashionable and desirable, as troubadours sang of lady love. Whence the popularity? If we look to the religious socio-mythical ideals which dominated pre-Christian Europe, we find many precedents for this degree of self-effacing devotion of the male to the female. Within the lyrics of the troubadours, these precedents echoed loudly. Such sacrificial sentiment to an idealized female figure may seem innocuous or even ridiculous to a 20th century reader, but they illustrate well the resilience and durability of ancient goddess worship. Witness the similarities between the language of courtly love and the traits of one of the most integral of pagan rituals, the slaying of the warrior victim king at the hands of the high priestess to enhance the fertility of the fields. In the long-standing religious practices of pagan people in Europe, the willing subjugation of the male to the female was nothing new. An omnipotent, all life-giving female had long been revered and had full dominion over a subject male who is expected to go to any length to prove his worthiness to her, to make any sacrifice she required of him for the good of the people. Sacred kings had been sacrificed by beheading or bloodletting from the neck to the goddess Diana throughout the Western world for millennia and part of the stag king of Dianic Europe was to be hunted and dismembered by the huntress's hounds each year. 
whether the king's blood was spilled in forests or on fallow fields, such rites were performed to ensure fertility of the fields and prosperity of the people. And in an agrarian society, where fertility could scarce be taken for granted, such a sacrifice was paramount. It transformed the victim to the ultimate provider and imbued his personal loss with redemptive glory. In one fell swoop of the high priestess's blade, he became both martyr and hero. Figuratively speaking, the love aspired to as courtly love could well be equated with the bloodletting of the sacred stag king, whose personal sacrifice ennobled and raised him above his merely human status as he gave his life in service to his people, his land, his queen, his goddess. Courtly love, as described by Andreas Capellanus, had a wasting effect on the lover. It made him weak and pale and drained his strength, and yet it ennobled him and enriched his character, placing the lover or the male as the often abject, if not life-threatening service of the beloved female must have hardly seemed the foreign concept we consider it today. It had been the accepted social order for generations of Europeans. The newfound, Christian-fashioned, male supremacist mythos was a new and very artificial-seeming novelty of the time. It's no small wonder, then, that courtly love so profoundly captured the imaginations of generations of Europeans here, at last, was a language which openly pined for an ancient, outlawed, almost forgotten, omnipotent feminine principle in terms which were permitted, often even encouraged, by the powers that be. In Gottfried von Strasberg's Tristan, the author bemoans, They are right to say that love is hounded to the ends of the earth. All that we have is the bare word, only the name remains to us, and this we have so hackneyed, so abused, and so debased, that the poor, tired thing is ashamed of her own name and is disgusted with the word. She heartily loathes and despises herself, shorn of all honor and dignity. She sneaks begging from house to house shamefully lugging a patchwork sack in which she keeps what she can grab or steal and denying it to her own mouth, hawks it in the streets. For shame. It is we who are the cause of this traffic. We do such things to her and yet protest our innocence. Love, mistress of all hearts, the noble, the incomparable, is for sale in the open market. But his distress is not without relief, for he goes on to say, Yet we are heartened when there is a good love story, when we tell in poetry of those who lived once upon a time many hundreds of years ago. Our hearts are warmed within us, and we are so full of this happy chance that there can be none who's loyal and true and free of guile towards his love that would not wish to create such bliss in his hound year from himself. Courtly love sang of the nobility of the feminine in ways that have not been heard for centuries. Once again, the elements of pagan veneration of the female, the sacred grove, the tilled fields returning to green fertility, 
the willing sacrifice of the male to the omnipotent female for a higher purpose, were introduced into popular expressions and echoed in verse after verse of courtly love poetry throughout the 10th through 12th centuries. The great pagan drama of Diana and her sacrificed horn god was revived once again, but this time in metaphor. One troubadour from the 11th century proclaimed, She who wishes to please me, I shall please her, being free. I repeatedly boast myself free, as being like chaste Hippolytus. The woman who seduces with eyes and finger does not overcome me that suddenly, boldness of a woman of this kind pleases me. I am the prisoner of your charm, my lady. Because I have strayed in this way, I am worthy of heavy punishment. Seize upon me a penitent, if it pleases you in your own chambers." Rambau de Aglan writes, I do not sing because of a bird or flower or snow or frost, nor even because of cold or heat or because of the field growing green again. Of my beloved, I make lady and lord, whatever may be my destiny. Another troubadour of the time proclaimed, Neither her indifference nor her idleness saved me from being wounded deeply by a sweet look the injury from which pierces me, which she gave me. Love deposes of me fittingly, at his own whim, and hope and my lady equally torment me much between them in a sweet way. I did not know if they intend to ever make me an ill reward, she for whom I have abandoned myself and everything else. May she wish to keep me for her use. For no sorrow from love, nor envy of anyone else, could turn my desire from her. If devotion can avail more than treachery and love wishes to dispense his good with justice, I may yet be able to come to great good. In the language of this new brand of abject subordination, the speakers, the male, are uncertain of the results of their sacrifice, much as the horned god kings of ages past must have wondered at the fruitfulness of their own deaths at the hands of the high priestess, what remains is their determination to prove worthy of that sacrifice, to revel in their subjugation and its higher purpose. Successful service is important, but more so is service in and of itself. Well may that love prosper, through which one hopes to have the joy of successful love and serving loyally, Grace Brule writes, but I expect nothing from mine except death, since I ask for love in such a lofty place, and so I see nothing in it but my own end. If my lady does not take pity on me, or if devotion and love do not ask it from her, in love there is such great nobility that it has the power to make the poor rich, so I look for its mercy and help. Loyal love, of which I have great abundance, will kill me. Service should be a pleasure for its own sake, and Heinrich von Morgan writes, Great is his misery, whoever puts heartfelt love in such a high place that his service is entirely unpleasing. Yet taking pleasure in serving the female principle waned as the years passed. 
Knightly orders which sprang up and institutionalized the practice of courtly love were first absorbed, then disbanded by the Christian church. The Knights Templar, by far the most powerful and prominent of orders, were dissolved. Their money was confiscated by Rome. The Order of the Garter, which retained the most pagan elements of any order, was all but destroyed when the Inquisition found most of the members guilty of witchcraft. Repeated attempts to revive the sensibilities of the old order were in vain. Christianity prevailed over those attempts, if not by negotiation and diplomacy, then by the terror and sheer force of the Inquisition. The veneration for the lady or the goddess that once thrived on the tongues of the troubadours, knights, and courtiers disintegrated in the political and social warfare that tore Europe apart for hundreds upon hundreds of years to come. To this day, we retain a sort of bemused fascination with courtly love. We use its name loosely, yet only rarely do we find its precepts examined in great detail. As though familiarity with this devotion is taken for granted, courtly love is referenced, its language employed in fables and modern-day myths, its significance regarded with a mixture of derision and admiration. Yet its true import, the terribly transformational power of willing sacrifice of everything one has for the sake of love, seems to intimidate us. The concept of romantic love rising to a higher plane and transforming the life of the giver for the sake of the receiver is celebrated, to be sure, but only as a fleeting thing, an infatuation which is bound to fade with time. Still, something so timeless as ennobling devotion, something so completely demanding as self-transcending sacrifice can scarcely be assigned to extinction. Millennia ago, the female principle was paramount. In ages past, there was no shame in the chosen individual sacrificing all for the sake of the superior female principle. No matter how it may baffle our modern, self-interested intellects, no matter how impractical such an ethos may seem to our independent, pragmatic minds, whether rekindled in role-playing activities of seasonal medieval fairs, reflected in the plot lines of modern-day fantasy novels, or woven thinly into the scripts of Hollywood movies, the concept of higher love's ennobling supremacy endures. Thank you for venturing into the unknown with me. Full details about the selected text are available in the episode description. Selected readings are for the purpose of research and study, entertainment and discussion. The views and opinions expressed in the included readings belong to the original authors and creators and may not necessarily reflect my own. The episode description also contains links that will allow you to join the community on social and support the continued production of this podcast. Don't forget to follow the show on your favorite podcast player so you're alerted when new episodes are released. In a wonderland they lie, dreaming as the days go by, 
dreaming as the summers die, ever drifting down the stream, lingering in the golden gleam. Life, what is it but a dream? Night, night, bitch. <laughs> <laughs>